Dr. Z. I have compiled a list of questions for you, all from women who were curious. And so we're going to kind of get into that mix. Um, for my guys who are listening, sit back, relax, take some notes and learn something with me. Let's go ahead and get started by just kind of introducing a little bit more about yourself. Tell them about some of the highlights from your journey of becoming a doctor. Okay, so um, I'm originally from Little Rock, Arkansas, born and raised, went to Wilbur D. Mills University Studies High School, graduated in 2000 and uh, some years back. Um, then I left and I moved to Maine where I went to Bowdoin College where I got my degree in biochemistry. And then I came back home mm. to Arkansas, got into med school, um, did an MD, my ma a medical doctorate and my master's in public health together. Um, ending in 2015 and then i started a family medicine residency in fayetteville which is how i met some wonderful people in northwest arkansas and when i completed my residency there um, i migrated to california where i currently am uh, i'm faculty for a residency program so i'm training young doctors to go into the world and treat patients and um, I practice full spectrum, which means that I do from birth to death. So I treat adolescents, uh, newborns, uh, geriatrics, and I also deliver babies, low risk pregnancies. So um, I get to do pretty much all the things that I really, really wanted to do and kind of made it work. Um, yeah. Just know that whenever I get a wife and we have a baby, we come to California. Okay, your room will be ready. I'm going to come knocking on your door be like, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> what should I do? <laughs> you just support her. You love her and you support her. That's what you do. <laughs> so Tyler, Tyler was actually working with me earlier today. She was helping me groom these questions up. And she brought up some really good stuff uh, with our first question. So let me give you a little bit of a background with the question. Many of our Black folks, right, many of us just in general, uh, we don't trust healthcare providers, right? Um, historically, we've been um, used as like test subjects. We've been ignored for proper treatment. Um, and there's just kind of this, this um, I, I, would, I would say that it's pretty widespread. There's a good amount of uh, Black Americans who do not necessarily trust like their providers and their physicians. Mm -hmm. um, but what I wanted to see from you was if you had any experiences of seeing that improve, if you've seen more conversations about providing the proper health care to all different groups, um, or if you know that there are outcomes happening to improve the, uh, the treatment for Black Americans in the medical field. Right. So uh, this is such a hard question. Um, reason being because it's a long, deep-seated mistrust in our community. Um, mm, that's what Tyler was saying earlier, right, Ty? Mm -hmm. Yep, mean, that's exactly what I said. Our parents, our parents before them, their parents, like it's a long-seated mistrust. And I think that there have been positive movements, but they aren't consistently everywhere. Um, every provider is not equal. I think there are some really great providers who do want to look at, you know, racial and ethnic disparities and kind of look at communications and competency in communicating with racial other racial um, groups. And there are some who are not interested. And so it's really hard to give a blanket an answer. Are we doing better? Yes. Are we doing great? No. Can we do better? 
Absolutely. And every day should be our goal to be better than the day before. Um, the way that we do that, though, is by making the environment more diverse. So we need to have more minorities in all aspects of medicine, as physicians, as PAs, as nurse practitioners, as techs, as nutritionists, as dietitians. There's so many aspects that we can have more diversity, which will help help us start to chip away at this mistrust that we have. Um, and, it, and it's twofold because part of it's on the community. You have to take ownership of your health as well. Like you need to put your head to the ground, talk to people, figure out what providers they have good experiences with. Um, I feel like there are lots of groups coming about like Health in Her Hue, where they're trying to make these places where you can find minority providers. Um, but again, I mean, not all providers are created equally. I've seen some great minority providers. I've seen some not so great minority providers. I've seen some great white and majority providers, and I've seen some not so great. So, I mean, it's, it's a hard blanket answer. Tyler, did you, uh, did you feel like you kind of fall into that category of feeling like whenever you go to a doctor, things are a little shady? Yeah, I am definitely that person. I would say I've never really been trusting of um, doctors because I've used both private health care and public health care. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in Newport News, Virginia, and my mom was laid off like at the economic downturn of um, 2008. My mom was laid off and we had to use like our health clinics for our um, health and insurance because we didn't have any Mm -hmm. um, for, you know, just primary care. And it's common knowledge that the doctors that work in those health clinics, they're paid to push certain programs and they're not really the nicest or they don't really necessarily have your best interest at hand. So um, I've experienced that from a very young age. And then plus just growing up with grandmothers who are teachers, I've, I've had that knowledge on how Black people have been treated since slavery, since the Tuskegee experiment, you know, since recently with all of these um, studies coming out about environmental racism and then testing that has been done on Black people that they were unaware of. So I wholeheartedly am on the side of I do not trust my healthcare uh, professionals. And I'm hoping to Zoe's point, once I see more people that look like me and who are truly concerned with my well-being, that that will change. But as of right now, yeah, no, it's, it's a no for me, dog. And right. And that's that. what I was. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, that's heart. what I was just going to ask. Like, if you if you walk into the room and you see that your doctor is black, does that kind of provide you a little bit of ease? So you walk into the room, you see Zoe smiling at you. You're going to feel a little bit better. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And when I was in Virginia, so and then so that's another thing Um, I do. I do need to say this. Growing up in Virginia, I I was able to experience a plethora of ethnicities and doctors and growing up since the age of five years old up until I moved to Arkansas, basically my entire life. I had the pleasure of being treated by black doctors. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 
about 2008 when my mother was laid off for the first time that I had to go use public health. Um, and then coming to Arkansas, like I had a black dentist, I had a black gynecologist, like anything that I wanted done, I had a black doctor or I had a Greek doctor or an Indian doctor or it, but here the pool is so much smaller. So I don't want to say every time I see a white doctor, I'm like, oh my God, you're trying to kill me. But I personally am more at ease if I saw Zoe's face or Jawari, if you wanted to be a doctor, if I saw your face, yeah. you know, I, I'll be like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave out here knowing what I need <laughs> to know and not feeling like you're trying to push something on me unnecessarily because going to those public health clinics, I do not know how many times I have been asked, do you want a Depo-Vera shot? Do you want to take the... um the cer um the cervical vaccine or you know all of these things where some people may feel as though they're necessary but for me I was like I don't need Depo-Vera and I personally would not like that vaccination for the cervical cancer Zoe you probably know what I'm talking about yeah. but I I never felt as though when I'm in the presence of a black woman that I'm being pushed to do something that I'm uncomfortable with and I can't say the same with any other service providers you know and I hear you 100% and I feel you as well. And it is a bit disheartening just being in the field that I can think about so many people who feel that way when they go to the doctor. And then it, it, and then it creates even a further barrier because preventive care is, is where you want to start. But if you don't feel comfortable mm -hmm. going to the provider, how do you get the preventive care that you need to prevent you from right. having worse problems later on? Um, it, it is, it is, it is, it's sad. Um, there are some things that have changed. I remember when I was, when I was younger, like shadowing doctors, they oftentimes had like brand reps who came in and gave us food. And there was more like, there were possible incentives that physicians could get, um, by providing a certain medication. And a lot of places have removed that um incentive so there's a lot of like there are a lot of things that as a physician i can't give you a medication because someone else has given me a, an incentive on the side to give it to you without me possibly losing my license and so i think i think that's something that people don't know that yes it happened a lot more back in the day but there are some things that have changed that don't allow physicians to do that so much anymore um, especially well, in Arkansas. I was going to say, that's exactly why we got you speaking to it. Cause I think you're going to allow a lot of people to kind of be more open to the idea of going and checking out with their doctor. Right. Right. Because I mean, and the thing is there, there are a hundred thousand guidelines in every field. And so you kind of use those guidelines, but then you kind of deter away from them based off each individual person. And so for instance, like the Gardasil, the HPV vaccination, like it's a recommendation because we've seen a surge in um, HPV associated cervical cancers. So if we have some way to prevent it, we're going to offer it. Um, but it shouldn't feel you shouldn't feel like it's being pushed on you. It should be felt as if like, here's some information. Here is what we are thinking about doing or the recommendation. This is why it's the recommendation. And let me provide you as the provider the information for you to make an educated decision on your own about your health. 
do you ever face any bias from like non-black patients? So have you ever been in a room where your patient's white or anybody or just anybody who's not black and you, you could just tell that they not, they're not really trusting you or they're giving you a hard time? Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Um, I feel like it's very interesting now living in California and mind you, I live in the central Valley. So, um, it's different from, you know, the LA's and the San Francisco's. Um, but it's still different from the South living in Arkansas. And so when I was training, I definitely had multiple instances where, my race played a role in how I was treated by the patient or how they interacted with me. Um, I have been called things that are not so nice by patients. Yeah, you about to look, you about to make me upset. I'm about to go find these patients. Oh, don't worry, it's all good. But I mean, <laughs> but the thing is, like, I could be mad about it every time. And I could take a moment and be like, you know what? That's a sucky situation. I wish that they weren't like that. But I think it's, I'm, I'm happy that that's not the kind of person I am. I recognize that at the end of the day, my job is to help. If they don't want the help from me, I need to either figure out how they can get to help and keep it moving and help someone else who's going to receive it rather than lingering mm -hmm. on the negative because I'm not going to get anywhere lingering on the negative. I just try and switch it to the positive. So... That's just kind of how I work. Some people don't work like that and that's fine. But yeah, I've had some, some sticky situations that made me feel some type of way. But I mean, you just keep it moving and do what you can for the next person. I, yep, think, uh, yep. I think we definitely have to sing your praises though, because I, I don't know if we necessarily give our flowers to the black doctors, especially the black female doctors. Um, just for I could imagine all the side eyes that you get. I could imagine all of the extra steps that you have to do to like gain the attention or the respect of certain people. And, and I, you know, like there's probably so many stories that you can tell on that. But I want to make sure that here right now we're giving you your flowers and we tell you we appreciate you for exactly what you do. Well, you know what? We are so appreciated. I appreciate that. It is blessed to be able to be appreciated. It's COVID time. We're in a pandemic. We ain't get. We don't get to mm -hmm. hang out with people. I appreciate. I appreciate you guys for this and for the appreciation. It's blessed to be alive. Going back. Going back to the biases, though, we were talking about biases from patients, um, from practitioners, and I remember you were sharing some stories for, with me from Arkansas about like just if you have um, like language barriers and if you aren't able to communicate, you've seen that really negatively impact patients before. So can you kind of maybe give any type of advice or share anything you've learned from like uh, for anybody who does have language barriers but needs help from their physician? You know what? The barriers in medicine, it's there it's language, it's education, it's reading comprehension. There's so many barriers that we don't even think about. So for instance, in Arkansas, I know that we did talk about um, the Marshallese community. Um, yeah. So when you actually learn about the Marshallese community, community, how they grew up, how they ended up coming to the U.S. and why they come here for healthcare, and the history, which I would say, look it up. I won't discuss it really. Um, but knowing that history, they're a nocturnal community. 
their language is very phonetic. Um, it's very difficult to understand. Um, you have to have a Marshallese speaker really to be able to communicate with them. Um, it's not like Spanish where I can tiptoe and figure out what some things mean. It's completely out of this world different for me being that I grew up in Little Rock and know English. And so you want to provide the best care to the patient, but we have a translator for Spanish and Chinese and all this stuff, but there's not a set translation system for Marshallese. So mm. you're either trying to depend on a family member to be their communication, or if you have an employee in their hospital and your clinic who speaks their language to be that source of communication and translation is not always a hundred percent. So what you're saying can be conveyed inaccurately or what you're receiving could be wrong. It's just, it's hard. It's definitely hard with any language, any situation where they don't speak English. It just is a barrier to providing actual care because you want to provide adequate, adequate care, but you have to be able to communicate with each other effectively. Um, yeah. And I mean, I mean, even like as we were compiling the questions for this list, there are I think one one of the language barriers you mentioned that I think almost all of us can relate to no matter what group you fall into um, is just the medical um, mm -hmm. terms, like kind of just the medical verbiage. And yeah. <laughs> like what what would you say to anybody who kind of just like doesn't question anything their doctor says because they're using a, a bunch of big words and they're like, okay, this is going over my head. You know what? Stop them. If your doctor is <laughs> speaking to you and saying words that you don't understand, it is your care. It is your health. You need to be aware and understanding and say, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. I need you to explain this to me, break it down. And I I think there are some people who will be like, oh, you know, because they've got something else to do. But then it needs to be said because we as physicians need to be aware of how we communicate with people. If I communicated with my patients like I would communicate with the surgeon who does their surgery, that means I'm not at all considering how I communicate with them so that they have effective care. And we need to be sometimes we need to be reminded of that. I'm very big on breaking down things to the very easiest level because that's how I learn. And so I feel like I just kind of do it for others, but there are a lot of people who don't break it down. So if it's, if you are in, if you are seeing your physician and you are not understanding them, do not feel shamed at all to say, hold up. Can you please, I'm not understanding what you're saying. Can you please break that down? Make it make sense. Because you could make it make sense, right? You could take these little notes and do the research on your own, but then you still might be confused. There's so much stuff on the internet. Have the person communicate with you the way you need to be communicated. I want to, I want to, because I think that, I think that that's going to help a lot of people who are already intimidated. Mm -hmm. I want to bring it back to women's health. And I want to kind of talk more about like some of your recommendations for uh, childbirth. So one thing that's really important is I think knowing if you have high risk or low risk complications, this is all stuff that I've researched and Tyler's correct me on y'all. So I'm learning, I'm getting better. But if you have low risk or high risk complications, and one of the first things that popped into my mind that I actually want Tyler to kind of just share, like, is it often, do women often ask 
like, hey, do I have any high risk complications? Or do you think from you and your friend group, like, that's not something that women typically like try to figure out until they're pregnant? I I think usually because I'm a I'm 26 as a younger black woman by now, for the most part, if to Zoe's point, you're doing those preventative maintenance and you're doing your annual women's wellness exams, you, you almost already know um, if the provider is taking care of you, that should be information that they're willingly giving you. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I personally don't seek that out. Like, Hey, am I going to have a high risk pregnancy? Like, tell me how horrible it's going to (laughs) be. So I like, I, (laughs) yeah, see, look, that's the thing. So for me, right. I'm never, I'm never going to be in a situation where I need to find out if I have high risk complications for a pregnancy, right? That's never going to happen to me. But, um, well, unless Zoe tells me that men, I guess we'll get into that. Hold on. We'll unpack that in a second. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, um, from a woman's perspective, right. I just, I guess I was curious on how often does it surprise women to find out they have high risk complications? So, okay. So I so I'm just gonna clarify just a little bit what we're talking about. So you can have a high risk pregnancy and the complications are the things associated during or after the pregnancy. So okay. you can have a high risk pregnancy because you have a or a past medical history of Hyper t- of high blood pressure or a past medical history of diabetes that is uncontrolled, or if you have like epilepsy or anything like that. Epilepsy, absolutely. If you're if you are obese or morbidly obese, that can be that can make your pregnancy more high risk. Um, per- trying to plan their pregnancy, very little. It should happen more often. Like some, I would love it if women came in and said, "Hey, I want to get pregnant." And so I'd like to have a physical and address some issues that need to be addressed so that I can have a good, healthy pregnancy. But that doesn't really happen very often. Usually it's, I've been trying to get pregnant for a while. I haven't gotten pregnant. Can you help me figure out what's wrong? Or here I am pregnant and look at all these problems that I haven't addressed. And when we talk about fear, it's usually in that sense, I feel like the fear usually is based on something that they already know. Like if I'm healthy, Mm -hmm. I exercise, I'm eating well, I've been taking care of myself. I'm not so much fearful of pregnancy, but if I know I'm not doing right, then I'm like, I'm afraid to go to the doctor for them to tell me the things I already know I'm not doing right. Right. And so going back to Tyler's point, if you are doing all of your normal checkups, a lot of this information is pretty well known. And even kind of the things you mentioned that are considered high risk. Uh, things like being morbidly obese, mm-hmm. having epilepsy, more times than not, you are aware of those things. So there's not really too many things that are going to catch you off guard. Right, right. Huh. See, there's a lot of dudes right now who are just shaking their head like, I get that. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. What about um, where they should give birth? So do you have any recommendations on for any women who are listening who are trying to decide between going to the hospital for delivery or maybe doing it at home? So, yeah. Okay. So ultimately we are all in charge of ourselves and mm-hmm. we all have the right to make the decision for our, this, ourselves that we wish to make. And I respect 
that autonomy 100%. Now, with that being said, I personally only deliver in the hospital. If you would like to have a home delivery, I will be no part of it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I will be no part of it. (laughs) So, and the reason being for me, so you have people who either deliver at home or they have birthing centers or they deliver at the hospital. If we go like tiers of level of care. So Mm -hmm. I've had many deliveries where mom's in labor, everything's looking good. We're chilling, coasting. And then all of a sudden the baby's like, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm done with this. My heart, I'm just tired. My heart rate's going to go low and it's just going to stay low. That's when we start to freak out and we have to make that decision that if we can't deliver this baby vaginally at this moment, then we need to have a C-section. The baby needs to be delivered in order for me to have a healthy mother and a healthy baby, which is always my goal. Giving someone a baby that is not alive is never fun to do. So if you think about the fact that anything can go left at any time, I have to think about what resources are going to be around me during this time that are available if something does go left. If something goes left at home, I either need to... Look, if something goes left at home, I'm going to be like, oof, what do we... <laughs> let me do my Googles real quick. And, and by the time you finish Googling, it's going to be <laughs> all the way left, right? We either need to figure out how to get you to the hospital quickly in the time it takes you to get to the hospital, is that an ambulance? Is that in the back of someone's car? And the time that it takes to get you there, we're not monitoring the baby. Uh, are we losing the baby? You know, there are a lot, are we losing the mother? Like there are lots of things, there are lots of variables. People have wonderful home births and they love it and good for them. But I'm, as with my license on the line, I'm not going to have a baby in a setting where I don't have everything available to me that I may need. And that's why I deliver in the hospital. Tyler, have you ever contemplated whether or not you would go to the hospital or do it at home? Yeah, yeah. I I don't plan on getting married and having a baby anytime soon. But those are the things that I think about. Um, I know we'll get into it a little further in the um, conversation. But at 26 years old, I already know that I would have Um, a high risk pregnancy as of right now. And usually when you see those beautiful home births and the doulas, they never tell you that they're very low risk pregnancies. Um, They're usually not the first baby that's done at home. So I've, I've done a little research on it. I would love to do a home birth, you know, be surrounded by like diffusers and my family and, you know, just be in a, in a different setting. But to Zoe's point, like I want to survive to spend my life with this child and I want my child to survive to meet me and already knowing what we know about um, the mortality rate for black babies in the United States. I, I would not want to risk my life or my future's child life because I'm already at risk going to the hospital. So it's almost like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. But um, in this specific example, when I'm placing me as the center, as of right now, I would most likely go to a hospital because I am a high risk um, 
pregnancy and it would be my first child. So it, it would only make sense. I would see if there were other options in the hospital, possibly giving a water birth or um, Zoe probably knows what I'm talking about. Those chairs where it's like you're not leaned back, but you're almost in a crouching position. Mm-hmm. So you're almost in a squat giving the baby like maybe maybe figuring out how I could incorporate holistic and natural birthing processes in the hospital, because I've heard horror stories. I mean, I'm, I'm from the South, like me, Zoe, all of us were from the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my father's family grew up in New Rose, Louisiana. And down there, they say like, when you get pregnant, you got one foot in the grave and one foot out because they know, and they've always known how risky it is to have a baby. So just growing up that way, I always knew I would give birth in a hospital because I disproportionately am impacted and more likely to die giving birth than any other race group in this country. So I always knew, okay, you know, I want to survive this. So I want to go to a hospital. So that's kind of where I'm at now, Mm -hmm. depending on how things go with my health and further down the line, I would be more so open to a doula, but to Zoe's point, that first baby, especially, I don't think I would do a doula, but you know, minds change when new information is presented, but that's where I'm at right now. Have you had patients come in Zoe who like they, things did go left while they were doing the home, deli- uh, home delivery? Um, so I haven't had it here because well, like, okay. in California, um, where I'm, where I am, we don't really have, we are a small town. So our resources are minimal. And so we don't really have like home birth options. Like we don't Mm -hmm. have many providers who are doing that. Um, But in residency in Arkansas, there's definitely more opportunities for things like that. And I did have a couple of people who came in um, and they were seen in the ER because they had a home birth and the mom had a laceration and and by laceration, just to be clear, I mean, she had Yeah, a I was going to say, please break that down. She had, <laughs> she had a, the baby comes out of the vaginal canal and you can have some tearing of some skin. And sometimes that tearing will bleed and it'll stop bleeding and you don't need to have a stitch to fix it. And sometimes it won't mm. stop bleeding. And when it won't stop bleeding, you have to suture it up. And depending on how oh. deep that tear is, and by deep, I mean... You can have a superficial tear and then you can have what we call a fourth degree tear where that tear actually goes into the anus. That's the butt. So <laughs> anybody who is wondering. <laughs> <laughs> but depending on how bad the t- laceration or the tear is determines what level of repair you need. And third and fourth degree tears, I don't, I don't know if midwife's do that kind of repair or if they're even trained to do that kind of repair. And that's a little bit of my lack of knowledge because I don't know about the curriculum. The thing about, you did mention a doula. So doulas are more of the support system and midwives are more of the provider system. And so I read that online and I saw that. Yep. Whenever you can have a baby at home, you can have a baby in the hospital, you can have a baby on Mars. At, wherever you decide to have a baby, I think it's always great to have support. 
So if you have a doula, that's just someone who's a support person who's going to help motivate you and be your person. Because I'm just going to be real. There are some men who are totally wonderful throughout the entire pregnancy and the entire delivery Uh and are giving you 100% (laughs) attention. And that's beautiful. But I think that it is totally reasonable for a husband to have like maybe a, a few hours that he kind of is not giving you all the attention. And that might be those few hours that you need a lot of attention. And that doula is paid to give you the attention. So I think it's, that look, that sounds that sounds like me. While she needs attention, I'm gonna be making a sandwich. Oh Lord have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord. I, I am super I'm super curious. So Joari, that that fourth degree tear may be new information for you and a lot of the listeners, yeah, but that, that is. is something that I've heard about a lot. And my friend who is studying to be an OBGYN in Virginia, she calls it a vaginus because it's just like Ooh. your vagina and your anus just merge into one. And Zoe, I'm just super curious, like, can a woman ever come back from that? Oh my like, goodness, yes. Or is it just... Yes. <laughs> okay, so I... I feel like, okay, do I have a lot of third and fourth degrees tears? No. Yes, does it happen? Absolutely. Does it happen all the time? No. Does it suck? Absolutely. But I imagine. You, in your training, you are trained how to repair these kind of tears. So a first, and se- a first degree or a second degree tear in the vagina can be easily fixed with a few stitches right? As you go deeper, Mm -hmm. you have the third degree. So then you start going in fourth degree. So that's when you actually get through musculature and the sphincter, which is what holds the butthole closed and open, right? So it's a circular sphincter that when you're ready to poop, it loosens up and opens up so poop can release. And then it goes right back to tight. So you aren't just pooping all day long. Now, if you've mm. torn that sphincter, what you have to do in the repair is be very meticulous in putting that sphincter back together and then putting back together each layer above that until you get to the vagina. Oh, ooh. oh my God. <laughs> yeah, Remember I'm at the like, beginning of the call oh, when I was like, I'm not getting married, I'm not having any babies anytime soon. Whenever I'm exposed to information like this, I'm like, yeah, when I say no time, like I told my parents, I was like, y'all would be lucky. And when I say lucky, if I like have adopted my first child by 35. Oh like, my goodness. It's after this information, I'm like 40. It's oh, no, 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 no. But you know, but you know what? <laughs> I, I do think we really need to address that though, because I have so many friends who have just a ton of concerns and a ton of fear when it comes to getting pregnant that, you know, it's over for them. Kind of like what Tyler said is one foot in the grave. Like a lot of women feel like, oh man, I, I might want to hold it off just because it could possibly be the end. So like, I guess, do you have any encouraging words that we can share to kind of like give people some comfort, Dr. Z? Yeah, no, I definitely think, okay, so one, pregnancy is beautiful. Bringing a life into the world is an amazing blessing. Like these are beautiful things and beautiful things come 
with some hardships as well. So like sometimes everyone's pregnancy is not the greatest. They gain weight or they have nausea and vomiting or they maybe have some other complications. But at the end, when you have a healthy mother and a healthy baby in that moment, when you deliver this baby, this crying, cute little thing that looks like an alien and give it to the mother <laughs> and the mom is so happy and the father is so happy and they're looking at each other and they're just in just marveling over what they've created in this life that now they love greater than everything. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. a very beautiful experience and moment. I think that again, being on top of our health and taking ownership of it is how we decrease the risk of these negative things. So you as the mom are creating the environment for this baby to be born. So you want to have the best environment for this baby to flourish. And so if you just think of it that way, in order for me to be my best environment, I need my health under control. So I need to get my yearly checks. If I have elevated blood sugars, if I have diabetes, I need to get my diet under control. If I have high blood pressure, I need to exercise, drink water, decrease my salt intake, uh, take medications if necessary so that I can lower my risk of having a problem later on. So it's all, it can be a beautiful experience, but we have to take ownership of some things as well. And it's, and I think it's interesting that people are like so weary that they're, you know, delaying their pregnancy. That it's over, yeah. Um, Cause I mean, I'm older than you guys. Um, by not, a, by, not much. by much uh, thank you not thank you much. very much i need to hear that but um <laughs> so i'm a smidge older than you guys but i don't have children um do i want children absolutely am i at all afraid of pregnancy no i think it's beautiful but i think that my whole life one i have had a goal and been focused and haven't found the right person to have that family with and i think that that is very important in choosing your partner and being smart and intentional about your relationships and about who you want to have children with and create a family with. Ooh. Yes. Cause I'm not about to be out here having a vagina for just anybody. <laughs> word, word. You gotta, you gotta be worth You gotta be worth it. 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 He gotta be 10 toes down because he may see that vagina and then like dip Both. on me. But if we if we've been strong for like five years before that baby come, he like, okay, I'm gonna I'm still have to rock with oh, on this one. That's hilarious. But it's you know, so gonna true. be like you're gonna be like, where your where your sphincter? <laughs> <laughs> It don't I exist. Lost it. it was obliterated. <laughs> it was obliterated. <laughs> it I was mean, obliterated. Yeah, this, you just, I mean, I think it's, I think it's wonderful to hear that people are being intentional about who they are creating life with, because working in Fayetteville, or not, not even just in Fayetteville, working in small towns with higher rates of lower socioeconomic status people, you oftentimes see very young pregnancies. Like I think the youngest person I've delivered is 13. And so you have people who are like, oh, I'm trying to be intentional and be smart and wait because I have these fears. And then you have some people who are like 20 years old on their fifth pregnancy. So being intentional, being smart, 
being proactive, taking your time and doing it at the right time for yourself is so important. And I feel like so many people don't do that. Um, and having some fear about this because of these things means that you're educating yourself about it. And an educated decision is going to obviously be better than an uneducated one. So I commend people on doing the work of trying to get their education on this subject and make the best decision for them in their lives. Also, so uh, we did have we did have we did have a friend of ours ask about epidurals. And there's just a lot of questions around epidurals around like, does it hurt really bad? Will it leave any like long lasting pain? Um, when should I when should I have an epidural um, procedure happen during pregnancy? And um, uh, can it affect the baby? Uh, but but if you don't mind, maybe just kind of explaining what an epidural is and either validating or debunking some of the myths that women have around epidurals and what it can do to them. Okay. So um, one thing I feel about all of these topics that we're discussing is that you are going to hear raving reviews and you're going to hear horror stories about every single thing. And mm-hmm. like, no one's going to be a hundred percent wonderful and no one's going to be a hundred percent great. So that's why it's all about educating yourself and figuring out what's the best thing for you now. Okay. Um, with epidurals. So what an epidural is, is that you are literally going into this in between you're going into the spine to what we call the epidural Oof. space. And you're putting a numbing agent and doing anesthesia. So blocking the pain sensors in that region of the area of the body through this epidural space. So am I for- And that's with a needle though, right? It's a needle. It goes through your back. You're not watching it go in. Some people have it done and they're like, oh, I just felt a little pressure. Some people have it done and- Oh my God, it was worse than delivery. So <laughs> again, it's everybody's different. For me in my home, we will worship the Lord and have an epidural and a delivery <laughs> in the hospital. <laughs> but, <Come on. laughs> but for other people, it may be different. Um, so when they place the needle, what they actually do is... Um, insert almost a catheter so that you can give continuous medication through this epidural. Um, You don't get an epidural until you are in active labor. And that's when your contractions are consistent and your cervix is opening and you're at least about four to five centimeters dilated. And so that means that when I check your cervix, I can tell that your cervix is open at least four to five centimeters. Um, because there's no point in numbing you when you're not in active labor. So that numbing can last throughout, throughout the labor. Once you deliver the baby, once you deliver the placenta, and once, if you have any tears, once they are repaired, that's usually when we stop the epidural and it takes an hour or so to start to wear off. Um, After they remove the epidural, they usually do have the mom lay on her back for about an hour, um, hour, hour and a half, because you want to decrease the risk of um, 
fast changes in the pressure that would cause headaches. Um, some people get headaches. Some people are just very sensitive. Some people get headaches regardless of precautions that you use. Some people are very sensitive to the placement of the epidural. And some people complain of back pain after the epidural. Um, it's hard to say all or never. So that's kind of a difficult, difficult question. It's kind of literally just educating yourself on what the possible risks are and making a decision that's best for you. Yeah, but you can't do like a little epidural sample. You can't be like, put the needle just in a little bit. Let me see if I can handle it. No, you it. can't just put the tip in. Just give me a... <laughs> just, put the, oh. <laughs> just put the tip in, please. <laughs> Let me just see if oh. I can handle it. And then also, Juari, I'm so surprised Zoe didn't say this, but you could be too far gone to get an epidural. Oh, yeah, I don't know true. if it was my mom or who it was, but she was like, I'm, I'm not doing an epidural. I'm not doing an epidural. And the next thing you know, that pain started mm -hmm. kicking in and she was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And the pain really started kicking in. She was like, I'd like an epidural. They were like, oh, no, honey, you so far gone. Oh, no. Like, you can't even have it now. So... Oh. And if I'm the husband, I would just be looking like it's over you for you. You would just be making a sandwich in the corner. Don't lie. We know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be chewing on that sandwich like, yo, I'll make you one for when this is over. So, oh yes. God, I'm going to eat two for us because I feel your Epidurals. pain. <laughs> so I, I tell my patients, because I, I, I live in a very strong, heavy Hispanic community. And a lot of times they don't want to do an epidural, which is totally fine. Respect it. More power to you. When I have moms who do natural births, I mean, like, take my hat off to you. I praise you because I couldn't do it. I can't even go through a period without any pain medication, let alone a whole delivery. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so... When they come in and they're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want epidural. I want natural delivery. Okay, that's fine. And they get to the point where they're like, oh, it's too bad. Now, if you are nine centimeters, 10 centimeters, uh, you have, you, 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 it's too legit to quit. You need to commit. You are having a natural delivery, no epidural. Um, the other reason is because with any anesthesia, it does have effect on the mom and the baby. So when we have, when we put, um, an epidural in we do watch the mom very closely because she can have respiratory depression which means that she her breathing can slow a little bit or she can have um, her blood pressure go down and we watch those very closely there are easy fixes we can decrease the dose of the epidural that's something that you can it's not one set dose you can decrease the dose you can make adjustments to make it best for each patient um, the same huh decrease in the heart rate that you can see in the mom, you can also sometimes see in the baby. And so when you have an epidural, we are monitoring the baby continuously and we can make adjustments based off of that. Um, so some people, they decide not to have an epidural and maybe they just do IV pain medication. And usually we do like fentanyl, um, which is a narcotic uh, pain medication. The thing about it is when you're closer to labor, that narcotic is going to bring the heart rate of the baby down. And that's fine when baby's chilling and we're okay in a good spot. But right at delivery, I don't want to depress that baby at all because the baby is about to have a real big wake-up call. 
It's going to come from this warm place it's been in for nine months to this cruel, cold world with bright lights. And it's just a stressful event for the baby. So you want it to have all of its fighting <laughs> capacity. So you don't want to depress any of that. So later on in the pregnancy, we don't do as many pain meds because we want baby to be like fighting and doing its best. Um, so those are things to consider. But if you want an epidural, if you know that you want an epidural, say that from the get-go. If you don't know, and say it and you decide that you do want it, say it at the earliest that you do want it. Um, because the other thing is, if I only have one anesthesiologist and I'm in a small town and you want an epidural and I have two C-sections going on, you got to wait for the C-sections. And in the time the C-sections happen, you might have had a baby without an epidural. Right. And the anesthesia, oh, that's a hard word to say. Anesthesiologists might be out there chilling because they're just like, hey, I, I didn't know they needed me. So, I mean, just making a sandwich, right. Right. making a sandwich. <laughs> with me. We, in the, we in the break room putting banana peppers on our sandwich. Oh, my gosh. We ain't thinking about that. So, yeah, no, I mean, it's it, you have to do what's best for you, but you just make educated decisions. And that education should come from your provider, but it should also come from you as well. And I mean, Tyler, you've been doing a lot of research on your own, which is awesome. So, I mean, I told you, you, I told you, you. I told you both of y'all are smarter than me. I had to make sure Tyler's mad smart. Oh, Come we on. always do that. <laughs> I just look like this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, epidurals, yay or nay, it's up to you. Do what you do. So, one thing that we ask every one of our guests who come on the pod um, is, is uh, basically, if someone who's listening, one of our travelers, that's who that's what we call our listeners here on the show. Um, if one of our travelers who's listening feels like, OK, I need to start taking my health more seriously. I want to go out. I want to find a doctor. I prefer to work with a black doctor um, and I and I want to start doing more regular checkups. Um, what advice would you give them? And they wanted to get started right after hearing this podcast. I mean, do the research. Um if you're in Fayetteville, um, there are some great minority providers, great black providers. Um, the family medicine program in Fayetteville, um, my year, the year before me and the year before that, we were blackity, blackity, black. Um, so we did create a lot <laughs> of great black providers. Now, mind you, a good amount of us have left Arkansas, but there are some really good ones still in Fayetteville. Um, I can provide a list of some possible options to you, um, Jawari, and you can pass that along. Um, also, there are a few great providers in Little Rock that I do know of. Um, Little Rock is definitely harder to get into these Black providers just because it's um, more populated, um, but they are there. Um, I will say, and I was really excited about it. So I had a patient um, this week and I was a little shook by it. Um, she comes in to see me. She's this cute little young girl, um, black, and she does not live in my town. She lives an hour and a half away. And so I, we're doing our interview and she's telling me who her other doctors are. And I'm like, well, what brings you to town? Like, why are you here? And she was like, um, 
I looked for black doctors on an app called Health in, in Her Hue, and you were the only black oh, primary okay. care doctor in the area. So I drove here and I'm establishing care with you. And I was like, wow, almost two hours I away. I was, I mean, like, in my heart, like, it bursts. I would, I wanted to get emotional because, I mean, it's just kind of one. Yeah, I was going to say there's like multiple so layers many, to that. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I always wanted to do X, Y, and Z, and I always wanted to help people. But then when you have someone who's like, I need like almost like a validation of like, you know what? I'm here in this location doing this thing that maybe I didn't think I was expecting to do. And maybe wasn't my plan, but obviously was a bigger plan that obviously was better. And it's mm -hmm. all confirmed that I'm supposed to be here because this person needed yep. one thing. And that one thing I am blessed to be able to provide. Like how I was shook. Like, I don't really know how to handle yeah. Yeah. that emotion that well. So I don't know. So I think, I'm having a moment, but that's a really, I think you should embrace it. You should embrace it. That's God's divinity. Agreed. You should have your moment. And I know, well, here you're in a safe space. So if you want to get emotional, well, sorry, Jory, not to cut over you, but <laughs> if you want to get emotional, ahead. I would hope he would allow you to, because I mean, that's God's timing. Absolutely. I mean, if that's, if that's what well, you said, she said she established care. So if that means she's coming to you once a year, she's like, hey, I can drive an hour and a half, two hours with traffic once a year to see a black PCP. I would do the same thing. And I, I do the same thing living in Arkansas. My therapist is black and I drive 40 minutes every two weeks. And depending on how it's going every week to see her, mm -hmm. because it's like, I know she's going to give me that some, she's going to give me something that no one else can right. give me. And that's what you're doing for a lot of people, Zoe. Like some people have never seen black women doctors. Some people have never seen black women doctors with such personality and great bedside manner. So you should definitely have your moment and thank God for that because who knows the impact that you're going to have on that little black girl's right. life. So kudos to you, girl. Like that is everything. And I'm more. Just extremely like, grateful. Yes. you're right. And my, my emotional is like, I'm not going to cry or nothing that it's not in my ministry too much, but ahead, I will just have out. a moment ahead, of just being out. overwhelmed with some, you know, joy. That's my moment. Oh, I'm a crier. I thought we were oh, about no, to start I'm crying. Oh, no, I'm not a crier. <laughs> look, look a crier. I, I went ahead and I started tearing up, too. Oh, no, I'm not a crier. I, I cry sometimes. The, no, the, not cry. But I, like, get super, like, teary-eyed. Like, oh, my allergies are acting up. Like, when you see a dad look at his firstborn and he's just like, oh, my God, that will make me teary-eyed. But the rest, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how can they, how can our listeners stay connected with you and, uh, Tyler, Zoe, how can they reach out and stay connected to you too? Um, so I feel like my Instagram probably is the, um, best source of access to me. Um, I feel like you might want to type out my name because it's stethoscopes, curls and pearls. Oh, because I'm a pretty girl of Alpha Kappa Alpha Consortium Incorporated, but, 
Um, <laughs> but um, so stethoscopes underscore curls underscore pearls. I think that's what it is. Um, but I have um, yeah my an email address also attached to that. So if people um, have any questions, I often get emails about you know someone having a kid who wants to be a doctor and wanting advice. Um, I did have a blog. I don't really consistently post on it, but it does have some good stuff for like high school, um, college stuff, um, med school stuff that was from back in the day. Um, but yeah, I think that Instagram is probably the best place to get a hold of me. Yeah, and, and I'm Tyler, how can they? Yeah, I was gonna say, how can they get connected with you? <laughs> I'm super regular, regular, so I'm just a normal Instagram girl. Um, so my Instagram is Morris M O R R underscore I S better. It's it's a lot with three T's. So mm-hmm. more is better with three T's. You know, um, just a play on words. And my email is just. Tyla M Morris at gmail.com. So I'm not a doctor, but you know, I have great conversation. But you, but you, love to share recipes. Dope, yeah, yeah I love, dope, love to talk about making money. So yeah, hit me up about whatever. But um, Dr. Z definitely is going to be a wonderful resource for um, people who just have questions to ask but I think everyone should be cognizant of the fact that she is a doctor and she works 365 seven days a week so you know <laughs> responses may be delayed thank you for that disclaimer because that is the truth the entire <laughs> truth and nothing but the truth so they're help me like, they're gonna be like oh she act, she acting so bougie I heard her on the podcast but now she don't want to respond that's I crazy she seemed so, like she had a personality I feel so bad sometimes because people will reach out and then I'm like uh forever to get back to them and I'm like you know what I was really gonna do it on a Saturday but then I had a horrible week and so I slept all Saturday except I thought I was gonna sleep all Saturday and then somebody decided to have a baby so then I got woken up at two o'clock in the morning had to go to hospital and then go back to work so yeah life is tough but I will respond at some point in time promise yeah yeah okay. that's, the life, that's the life of a doctor though Okay, y'all. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. This has been the Thousand Miles of Melanin podcast. I am your grateful host, Jawari, and take your journey one step at a time. We'll see you next time.